I want to go to there. Snipe! Saw the window and I just couldn't resist it. doesn't like coffee ice cream. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, full hearts, get Hello and welcome to the Televerse Sound On Sites TV podcast. This is Kate Kalsuk and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? Not roasting in Austin, so I feel pretty good. Yeah, that's fun. Uh, we're, we'll be talking at the end of the podcast with a uh, friend of the show, Todd Vanderwerf from uh, from Vox.com about ATX, the Austin Television Festival, or a television experience, as they prefer to be called, um, which was this past weekend in Austin. I was there covering it. You can read my write-ups at Sound on Sight. I had strong feelings about things, some positive, some negative, um, but you can read my thoughts over at Sound on Sight. Um, and so we'll talk about that with Todd at the end of the of the podcast. Very glad we could have him on for a different perspective, I guess we should say. But um, this week, yeah, I'm. It's it's strange for me because despite having spent the entire weekend watching television and discussing television and writing about television, I'm like stressed out because I'm behind on television, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't like it. Um, so I have not had the chance to see any Sense Eight, um, and. And next week, this week, uh, Orange is the New Black is coming. And I still have watched oh, Banana balls. and Cucumber and Tofu. And I still, like, the number of things that are, are looming that I'm behind on. And because it's a Netflix model and because, you know, some of these are shows that I meant to catch up with and haven't yet, uh, it, just, it feels like a cloud hanging over me. I'm sure I'll, I'll enjoy or at least be interested by much of it. But, uh, yeah, I don't like that I'm behind. Uh, no, you wouldn't, would you? That's okay. You'll catch up soon enough. Um, when's Comic-Con again? Yeah, exactly. It's in about a month. It's uh, literally the first day of Comic-Con is a month from when we are speaking and um, or preview night, I should say. And so the, the notion of me getting caught up and prepped in time for Comic-Con is a very lovely dream that hopefully will come to fruition. Um, any any interesting news for TV news for you this past week? What has been your, your TV focus since you've not been... You're just mostly just laughing from afar at the, the various tweets from Comic from ETX? Uh, not really, since I put in 50 hours of unpaid work this week. Um, z- <laughs> That'll I do mean, it. Uh, I mean, I still think fests are dumb. <laughs> I don't mean to insult anyone. I just, we talk about this in our in our segment this week. I the idea of of fan conferences and or glorified versions of fan conferences don't really interest me because I like arguing too much. Um, but uh, I mean, enjoy everyone. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess I put I did put in about fifty hours of unpaid work. Only I had the pleasure of paying for it because I had to pay for my press badge. You win. Yay. We got an email from Carl this week uh, who said, I I think I finally found my threshold, Kate and Simon. I just watched Rick and Morty on Hulu, and I really enjoyed it, even though some of it pushed the boundaries of good taste. Uh, I really love Aubrey Plaza, so I was excited for Golan, the insatiable, insatiable, I should say, and was prepared for it to be boundary-pushing because of the subject matter, but I was really put off by it. I'm writing mainly because I have been wondering what my threshold is. I like shows like The Walking Dead and The Strain that show graphic violence and the situations in Game of Thrones are disturbing, but they don't affect if I will watch the show. 
with Golan starting out with Dylan getting dream retribution on the school bullies by macing them to death <laughs> and the aspects of devil worship and hinting that the mom would not throw the devil out of bed for eating crackers is not only not that funny, it's really beyond what I can take. So I can now identify if a show is above or beyond the Golan threshold for me to determine if I will watch. Is there a certain subject matter or show choices that will turn you off of a show? Huh. I mean... The thing is, I feel like um, there are things like... um, If if a show does, does something poorly... Uh, if it does enough other things right, I can usually forgive things it does poorly, uh, and that goes for content and 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 sort of quality things, I guess. Um, that being said, I'm somewhat distressingly um, desensitized to virtually everything. Yeah, I I hear you with that. Um, the the one that I point to. Because I've got, uh, and I, again, I maybe I should be hashtagging screener privilege on this. Um, the one that I point to is Tyrant, because I've got a very pretty uh, box of uh, press kit for season two that I have not opened yet, because I hated the first episode. I may have powered through two episodes of season one, um, but I hated it so completely. It angered me so much in its depiction of uh, rape and violence towards women, its utter lack of interest in them as people, as opposed to as objects there to be raped and there to be tortured, etc. Um, that I, pr- I if if they send me something, I watch it because I'm very aware that that is a privileged position. That, that is something that other people do not get, and that I'm happy to take advantage of and uh, and appreciate. Yet I haven't opened Tyrant yet, and part of that is because I've been at ATX. Um, but I'm going to have to decide here pretty quick if I'm going to continue to watch everything or if my Golan threshold is a Tyrant threshold. That, that honestly sounds like a moral and ethical dilemma more interesting than Tyrant. <laughs> well, there's that. Nobody's telling me I need to watch more Tyrant. People are telling me to watch more Halt and Catch Fire. No one's telling me to watch more Tyrant. By the way, we will talk That's about true. Halt and Catch Fire next week on the podcast. Um, I haven't been able to watch any again because of ATX. Yes. But I, I watched one episode. I'm working on it. Um, some other things got in the way, but I did watch the season two premiere. But we'll get there. We'll whoop, get there. Whoop. And and we should say that it doesn't have any of those Tyrant problems. It really, really does At least doesn't. not so far. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I absolutely see, um, see your point, Carl. What I would point to is a combination of elements that I find distasteful or um, disturbing without something, like you said, Simon, countering it and married to a perspective or perceived perspective on my part of the showrunners from the showrunners that um, disrespects the audience, that treats the audience um, yeah, that that doesn't see the audience audience's time as valuable or doesn't respect their intelligence. Um, so a combination of factors can coalesce, and in the dark, uh, you know that that the dark triad thing they say about about uh, dating psychos, um, it's like the tyrant triad for me. What? You've not heard of that? No. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a thing. It's about, we're not going to go into it now because you, you, okay. you have work. But no, that's the thing. It's about like, you know, 
the dark stranger notion but they're actually like they seem like they're aloof and stuff because they're psycho they're like they don't actually care about about people they're sociopaths oh nice yeah anyways you're good okay yes but uh but i look forward to hearing from our listeners if any of you have uh like what is your threshold what is the thing that you that will make you stop watching a show. I know for many people uh, that we heard from that happened this season with Game of Thrones. Um, I look forward to hearing what other people think of this topic because I think it's worthy of discussion and exploration. Um, that's just where Simon and I are with it, at least currently. But we're going to take a break now um, and dive in with our weekend comedy because we, we got to talk Adventure Time. I'm so excited we to do. talk Adventure Time. Woo! So we'll be right back after this. Everything's falling into place. I'm right where I should be The tides of life are led me here And that's why I'm not scared I know the answer will appear Please this week in comedy and reality, I'm going to talk briefly about the So You Think You Can Dance auditions in Detroit, and then we'll dive in with Inside Amy Schumer, Fight Like a Girl, Silicon Valley, Binding Arbitration, and v- uh, Veep Testimony, and then Adventure Time. You Forgot Your Floaties, Be Sweet, Orgalorg, On the Lamb, Hot Diggy Doom, and The Comet. So much awesome Adventure Time. Very excited about it. But first up, So You Think You Can Dance continued its auditions this week in Detroit, and uh, I was a bit frustrated. I mentioned this previously. Um, this, this episode doesn't have any of the Jason Derulo is uncomfortable with people who do not, uh, uh, whose gender presentation is different from his heteronormative perspective. Um, which was good because that was very frustrating and angering in the premiere. Uh, but it does have, let's watch people fail. And that's not a thing that, so you think you can dance usually does. And that's frustrating to me. Also, it highlights the notion that, uh, or it seems to be presenting the fact that the people on team street and the people on team stage will not actually be dancing the other, the opposite styles. So the people on street are not going to have to do ballroom. They're not going to have to do contemporary and the people on stage are not going to have to do hip hop. And that's very frustrating to me because it's a complete abandoning of their core principles of what the show has always been and what its priorities have always been. So I, I, I was going to say that kind of prompts a, <clears throat> Yeah, then what is the show if not that? So um, I am not pleased with what I'm seeing, and I'm uh, understanding more and more the people whose response is, if this is the zombie corpse of So You Think You Can Dance, they should just canceled it instead of bringing it back to be this. However, there were some really good auditions this week, some people I'm very excited to see um, move forward, uh, including the Queen of Detroit. That was really cool. It's nice. It's always nice to see a different body type make it through the initial process, even though she, I mean, I understand why she didn't audition until this year, because I would be very surprised if she could handle, you know, if she had to do a, a, a Viennese waltz, I don't know how she'd do. I'd like to see her try though. And I hope that'll come up this season. Um, also I really like the opening jazz performer. I thought she was fantastic. And, uh, there are some really good things happening in the audition rounds, but how that pans out as we move forward in the season, I'm even more skeptical than I was after the first set of auditions. So I believe there's one more audition episode and then we're into Vegas and then we're into the show. So, um, 
I got my fingers crossed. I want to be excited about So You Think You Can Dance, guys. I really do. Um, is, does this affect your likelihood of tuning in once we get to the live show, Simon? No, the timing is horrible. But uh, I, I, I'm glad you're enjoying it still, kind of. Kind of. Let's move on to the comedies, starting this week with Inside Amy Schumer, Fight Like a Girl. And for me, uh, I, I enjoyed some of the sketches. Um, other ones were less successful for me. But I just, the titular sketch, Fight Like a Girl, it hit it hit all the right notes for me. I thought it was so fun. And yes, it's some of them, I'm just assuming you're going to have this issue. Let me know, Simon. It's very stereotypical and very... Uh, you know, frustratingly done, already covered material, like this notion of her not liking to be uh, compared to her mother and everything. But the delivery of it, the performances and the, um, the, 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 the execution, I guess, really did work for me in that fight like a girl sketch. That was the highlight of the episode as far as I was concerned. Well, and I, I, I put on my, <laughs> put on my, I've been reading bell hooks on the, on the bus hat uh lately but um uh you know i think one of the reasons the fight like a girl sketch which is the easy highlight of this episode um like i literally have difficulty remembering the rest of the episode um is that those stereotypes exist because these are the positions that uh that 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 women so frequently find themselves put into by the constraints of patriarchy and uh and, and sort of these these uh, these conventional rhythms of male female relations um, that seem to just play out over and over again. And it's, sure, it can seem like a hackneyed joke, but the fact of the matter is, for a lot of people, uh, you know, these are real. These are real waves of feeling that happen uh, because we don't have a different script for these things. So you know, it can seem hackneyed, but I think it's also quite real. And that's my very high-minded way of saying that the sketch was funny and worked, and I didn't have a problem with it. <laughs> Fair enough. Do you have any other thoughts on the episode, or shall we move swiftly on? Uh, no, I'll, I'll only add that um, Inside Amy Schumer has this rhythm that it does every season where, or it seems like it does, where its initial episodes have like amazing like world-demolishing sketches, and then after that it kind of settles down into being like a pretty decent sketch show. <laughs> Um, and every season it gets better at doing that. Um, I would really, it would blow me away if it had like an all killer season, but I'm, I'm, I, I'm doubtful that ever happens, but I would like it to. Fingers crossed. Then maybe uh, it'll be, it'll rebound for you or at least be more consistent, not just have one killer sketch, um, next week. So that would be, that would be lovely. Let's move on to our next episode though. And that's Silicon Valley binding arbitration. This season has been, uh, really, I think very strong from Silicon Valley, but binding arbitration was the first blip in that for me. I, I, I was much less engaged by this episode than I have been the rest of the season. What did, what did you think? Um, I actually like this episode and I think the reason that I did is because it, it comes back to the most interesting idea about the show, which is one that they've sort of let go of for the last four or five episodes, which is this idea that, um, Richard, did I finally get his name? You did. This idea that Richard um, wants to create, wants to be part of a tech upstart that isn't just another tech upstart run by Silicon Valley assholes. Um, and this idea that he, uh, yes, he could absolutely go on the stand and, uh, and get up there and lie and save his ass and the ass of everyone around him, but he makes a specific choice not to. 
which is like a it's a very not HBO in 2015 decision to make. Like the default position in any show in 2015 is cynicism, and this idea that he uh, would actually take a principal stand on that, uh, which I totally don't predict will have earth shattering uh, repercussions next week, but still. Um, the, the fact that, that they, that they stuck to their guns on that instead of just having another, uh, another one of their dozens of little tiny and slightly larger capitulations. I actually like that. And it was, it, it may have been a, a little bit corny, but I thought it really worked and it kind of grounded the episode a little bit, uh, a little bit more than it might've otherwise. Um, I would have liked that to have been a more consistent theme this season, but that's just me, I guess. I did. I absolutely agree. Uh, actually, with what you're saying, Simon. And I did really like that, the way that that came together at the end of the episode and having the character stay true to who he has been and distinguish himself from those around, around him did. Uh, I think I, I was all right. Like you said, I was all ready for this to be, Oh, are we going to take another step towards the dark side? And then is the show going to become, but is he really that different? I like that. They're like, yeah, he is. He is. He is different than Gavin Belson. And I would quickly add to that, uh, that, it's 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 well timed because so much of the interim time has been Richard being almost ridiculously ineffective at everything, even at being bad at stuff. Um, and so to have him come back to that and be like, no, actually, I'm going to just really be good at this and be, try to be a good person, I think, is a really good note for them to come back to near the end. Yeah. I also like what they gave uh, Big Head to do. Um, I, and I think the actor does a good job with it as well. I like that. Just like the. The, just the confusion and um, his his attempts to help out and give honest answers and then just be taken, um, you know, as a as a humble genius. I thought that that did work very well. I just wasn't laughing the way that I was earlier in the season. And hopefully that's a fluke and I'll be back to really being on board for the finale. Um, I, I can get behind that. I think it also it suffered from being a testimony episode on the same night as Veep's testimony episode. Which is as good a way as any to get into our next episode here, Veep testimony. And yeah, because I thought this was fantastic. I gave it a big old A at the AV Club. You can read my, my thoughts there. But I loved that they this episode features a few of the things they do well. But really, it sets aside almost all of the series' strengths and the things that it goes to and the things like the natural rhythms and um, and approaches of the season, of the series... And gives us a really entertaining, if not laugh out loud for me, really enjoyable and really, uh, really well acted and paced and written and directed episode. Um, I have to say, while I really enjoyed this episode and um, I think it probably deserved your A based solely on the list of nicknames, <laughs> um, which was one of the few times that it, that I think they were really at peak uh peak veep insults for like a solid minute uh this season I, I, it was a slight letdown for me if only because um as great as it was for them to break format i would have liked for the episode to have a little bit more heft mm-hmm. um it felt strangely inconsequential uh considering the gravity of the accusations being thrown around considering how much almost everyone admits to um it was very much like oh we're gonna throw erickson under the bus so here's a character that we get the sense that none of them really care about and who's really only only been around for a few episodes 
and he's the sacrificial lamb um and the only one apparently out of all this um doesn't feel right and i guess i can't help but compare it to uh the corresponding thick of it episode which felt like it had real stakes um and felt like the culmination of a lot of things whereas this felt more like a lark it was still very funny um it was still extremely well executed and um it was great to see a, a somewhat different side of, of several characters but um I, I could I, I I ended it thinking that was really funny and really fun but it I just felt I couldn't escape the feeling that it could and should have been more and I co-signed pretty much all of that um I I enjoyed the episode and I think also partly I've been struggling a little bit with Veep this season I think they've had uh, issues with their larger arcing of certain of their storylines um the stuff with uh, the Tom Jane's character and Hugh Laurie hasn't worked for me nearly as well as I think it needed to for me to be fully invested in this season, let alone their their highlighting of Erickson at the beginning of the season and then just completely dropping him with no explanation when it makes no sense for that to happen in the middle of the season. Um, so I think because I've had these issues, these recurring issues, um, keeping the show down for me just below what I th- like, what I feel peak veep is i think having a break from all of that just putting all of that baggage off to the side and mm-hmm. watching them be very funny i i was so grateful for that and so i was enjoying that so much that the the issues of exactly like you say that there's nowhere near the consequences that there's like when when ben starts just like telling every the truth about everything i i was like oh crap they're really gonna do this and then at the end of the episode it very tidily just throws bill under the bus and Based on the tone, the way that the episode wraps up, it really seems like that's going to be it. Yeah. Um, speaking of that being it, so predictions. The show's called Veep, and uh, Julia the Dreyfus is the main character. So um, Tom James takes the top part of the ticket at some point, right? Yeah, that's the thing that a lot of people have been predicting, and um, my issue with that. Uh, is twofold. First of all, I don't care that it's called Veep. It does not bother me for her to be president and the show's called Veep. I don't, like, I negative care about that. And for more thoughts on that, go back to when Cougar Town, uh, you know, was talking about changing its title. Nobody cares. Very few people care. I should be more careful with that. Um, the That, what the title of a show is, if the show is good. And so for me, that is a non-issue. I understand that for many fans, it is not a non-issue, for me, it is a non-issue. Also, after the um, the oh, the convention, that's just not a thing that would happen. And I, I, they're gonna have to try to. I, it seems like they're, you know, if if they do try to make her veep in the next episode, they're gonna have to find a way for me to believe that she would accept that role because I don't see any president ever accepting vice president after having been president and certainly not a character like Selena. So um, I just don't, I can't imagine them getting me to buy that both as a, just how the government works and also on the character level. I mean, it's going to have to be something that's not in her control. Um, Yes. She can turn it down. That's, that's how that works. You can say no. Um, no, I mean, uh, I, I mean, what, however, that if, if it was going to happen, uh, it would need to be, uh, something she, like, she fucks up so bad that, that she ends up having to sort of demote herself. 
um, which honestly could be based on any number of things that have already happened. Um, and to, to me, the, 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 the reason that scenario makes sense in terms of um, Tom James being president is because I assume Hugh Laurie isn't going to stick around. And in the past, the president hasn't been on the show much, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to sort of return to an earlier season approach while still theoretically keeping that character in the universe but not needing need, need to have Hugh Laurie around makes sense on a practical level. Um, that being said, um, if I... Uh, and I've, I've enjoyed the season, uh, but it has definitely felt very scattershot. And if, if it had come out that like, if this had been the season where a new showrunner took over and Ianucci had already left, it would have felt like it made more sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas, um, this kind of feels like, like Ianucci's already got like one leg out the door and he's like, you guys good. Is this good enough? Yeah. Okay, good. I'm just gonna, uh, um, goodbye. Like, and it, it, that, that sounds harsh cause it's, I've still really enjoyed the show, but it, it feels like it's coasting a bit. Yeah, I can, you know, especially the, the after how tight and um, and successful pretty much every episode, at least for me, in season three was. I, I absolutely see where you're coming from. Yeah, my, and my last thought on, on Veep for this week will be that I I hear what you're saying, but I, I have a very, very hard time thinking of a way they can get me to believe that Selena wouldn't walk rather than be Veep again. I guess we'll see next week. I mean, I had trouble believing half of this episode, so... Touche. <laughs> well, let's move on to our last show of, of our week in comedy, and that's Adventure Time, which had six, six, count them, six episodes. Super fun. Um, I, let's start with general thoughts. General thoughts. General uh, thoughts. And impressions. What? How, how did you feel about these last six episodes of this season of Adventure Time? First of all, can we get six episodes of Adventure Time every week? Because that would be amazing. Like, they can take a couple months off, and then just for several weeks, just an episode a night, and then two on Friday, just for kicks. Because um, that's an amazing setup they, they had there this week. Um, I, uh, to be honest, I wasn't 100% blown away by every episode. Um, and I don't think that the end game of the season was as impressive as maybe the last couple of seasons. Uh, but there was a lot of really good stuff throughout these episodes, particularly the first episode and the last episode. Um, the last episode in particular, I was just stunned at how much crazy, awesome shit they crammed into 11 minutes and 11 seconds. <laughs> uh, because that was just, I mean, it was like, uh, I'm, I, I, you cram in like a like a 2001 homage. And then also have these incredible character moments. I mean that that scene of uh, of of Finn being essentially given this like series this like series wide prophecy about his past, present, and future, and all the characters he's tied up in. Like that's an incredibly succinct way to tie into so much series history. A lot of which, frankly, I don't even remember. But I but I, <laughs> I see it and I think, oh yeah, oh yeah. And it, I mean, you, I'm sure you benefited from a, from a recent series watch on, on that one, but man, that was one deft final episode. Yeah, it was pretty great. And I liked the combination of, cause when we heard that there were going to be six episodes this week and it was going to be like this final conclusion to the season, um, that could have been six heavily serialized episodes. You know, it could have, it could have been like a, a full on arc instead. It's still it, like those 
threads are there, absolutely, especially with like Orgolorg and these other elements. Um, and the prophecies of the comet are pretty much throughout these episodes. But I mean, watching LSB babysit, I'll, I'll, I'll watch that every night of the week. They can give me the LSP babysitting show, and I will watch at least a season of that before I get tired of it. <laughs> um, speaking of prophecy, I liked how um, I sort of liked that they backed away from. It feels like every season of Adventure Time gets a little bit darker, and the stakes get a little higher. And even though they had that element of prophecy this season, what what ultimately ends up happening with the comet wasn't really that big a deal. Like in Adventure Time terms, I feel like they had bigger, scarier, more dangerous episodes even this season. And I was fine with that because I'd prefer they not try to up it every every year and just get darker and more heavy. Like, I, I love Dark Adventure Time, don't get me wrong, but this is still supposed to be a, a light, mostly fun, mostly kid-friendly um, show. So I kind of, I, I like that we got a conclusion that even though it honored, like, we we basically got like a scene that honored the prophecy that, that we saw for princess Bubblegum and the candy kingdom. Um, but it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't the entire candy kingdom getting disintegrated or whatever. <laughs> um, and I, I, I appreciated that. Definitely. And to have this like almost season long tease of the comet culminate in Tignataro being like, Hey, so want to be in corporeal? No. Okay. I knew I recognized that voice. <laughs> yeah. It's great. A delightful anticlimax that, like you said, allowed us to tie into so much series memory and just keep throwing up, like, like anger. And it's Tiffany. You know, like, it was great. Yeah, and I also really liked the um, the conclusion we got from Martin, who I assume is just gone now, um, because he's... yeah. I That note that I, I, I don't recall seeing before on any show, really, of of Finn really just understanding who his father is and he's had plenty of, of, of opportunities, and there's even an explicit callback to the tower in that episode. Um, you know, he's had plenty of time to be angry about who his father is, very justifiably so. And just giving him that note of, you know, this is just you, and this is your chance to be the most Martin you'll ever get to Martin. And even, <laughs> though, that's, even though that sucks and you're awful, it's kind of cool that you get to be the most Martin you can be. And that was kind of beautiful. Well, yeah. And again, to, to have him be given visions of his parents, of, of what a mother is and what a father is and what a scoundrel is. And it presented as unquestioned, just facts. Like we got to, we got the episode earlier this season uh, with Jermaine and touching on their family and their upbringing. We got a couple actually ep episodes that really touched on that this season. And so I, I just love the way that this show is like, yes, Martin is his father, but for all intents and purposes, it's Joshua who's his real dad and has that, you know, earned that title. And so to, to have that little nod here and the acceptance, um, if not forgiveness necessarily, but understanding that we get from Finn, like you said, it's very mature and it speaks to the larger progression of the character and adventure time is great. It's wonderful. We love it. Yes. And uh, the last thing I'll say is that I really, really hope that Bubblegum stays not the princess next season because uh, I'm very excited about what could happen with that character. If she's not stuck in that role, there is a lot of potential to see what, wh who is princess Bubblegum if she doesn't have her giant wall of cameras. Yeah, uh, I don't know if they can keep Andy Daly as the King of Ooh, but um, 
either way, I, I would I, I hope they get to let her expand her horizons. Poor Starchy. <laughs> that was Poor Starchy always getting the sweaty end of the lollipop. <laughs> <laughs> well, what wins your week in comedy, Simon? Uh, I'm gonna give it to Adventure Time. Any particular episode <laughs> or just in general? In general, and I hope it enjoys its like three weeks off or whatever it is it gets. Yeah, I'm. I, I absolutely agree. Adventure Time, such a wonderful show, and I'm so glad that uh, that it gets to just do this kind of thing. You know, that they just they must leave them alone because there's no way that this is a product, a, a show that could happen, and like these episodes could happen if there was such a thing as notes for this show. Um, no, it's just wonderful, and. Um, it hasn't been as consistent a season for me. It's not like a show that we felt like we had to talk about every week or that we were constantly pointing to its greatness, capital G. But it really ended on a high note, and I look forward to what's going to come next year. Absolutely. Yes. Um, now we'll take a break and come back with our week in genre. genre simon's going to preview jonathan strange and mr norrell which is premiering this week on bbc america it's already aired in the uk um and then simon's going to talk about sense eight uh, a little bit uh I, the first three episodes and because uh, again i haven't had a chance to watch any yet i look forward to it the conversation around it has been fascinating we'll get there um then we'll both talk but mostly simon's going to talk about the hannibal premiere antipasto because i have a hannibal podcast and then simon's going to talk some more about game of thrones <laughs> the dance of dragons because i have a game of thrones podcast and then we will both talk yes we'll both talk about orphan black ruthless in purpose and insidious in method and penny dreadful glorious horrors but first simon for once the genre section it's like all you it's the this Simon Roundup. Absolutely. Um, uh, you watched Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell? Kind of. I watched uh, the pilot. The pre pilot. I watched the, the first episode. Um, Why don't we start with what is this show about? Uh, right. Early 1800s alternate Britain uh, in which magic was at some point practiced in the distant past, but it's sort of become a thing that is just studied and not at all practiced as far as anyone knows. And uh, there is a magic society, but it's just a bunch of scholars sitting around looking at their three books on magic and being very impressed with themselves. Uh, and then, uh, anyway, then there's some magic all of a sudden and people get, <laughs> get it all in a tizzy. That's all you really need for now. Um, and uh, features uh, Eddie Marsan, who I like very much, and uh, some other actors I enjoy. Honestly, the, the the thing with these with these British uh, adaptations of of well liked novels is that they feel 
um, extremely safe. Not not having read the book, um, you can tell that it is a slavish recreation of something. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have that spark of innovation that you think of. Uh, ha- you know, a, a new series having this is not a new. This is not a series situation. It's very much a we are going to take this story and adapt it in the correct amount of time it takes to correctly adapt this story correctly. Um, <laughs> did you get that? Uh, and it, it feels very self-assured, but also very safe in that way. Um, based on on this one episode, the jury's still out. Uh, the production values are quite nice. Uh, it's, it's very well cast. It has some moments of wit here and there. Um, it's very prophecy-heavy, and that can be great, and that can be annoying. Uh, it's really hard to know. Uh, I can tell you right away that if you are a fan of the book and have a desire to see to see it reenacted visually, um, you are. This is basically Christmas and all other national holidays of all nations and cultures rolled into one. Uh, I don't know if I'll watch more of it um, because uh, there's a lot going on, and I just. I, I just feel like with properties like these, you will only ever get a certain amount of enjoyment out of them if you're not already sort of signed on. If you're not already on board, does that make sense to you, Kate? It just it's it's got that low that that, that sort of safe property, low stakes feel um, that kind of limits it. Uh, and I, I don't know if I'm being unfair. What if you are unfamiliar with the property, but you like magic and you like early 19th century? Um, I think. I mean, I, I think I like all those things, um, and I, I, it, it still has that, that musty, safe feeling to me, uh, but I think that uh, it, it, there's certainly nothing bad about it. Uh, I just I will say that having had the opportunity to, I did not feel immediately compelled to watch more of it, even though I felt like I should. Um, let, more, more, on, more thoughts on this later, perhaps. Yes. Anyway, I, di- I did say I was going to try to keep this short, and I'm utterly failing. Uh, <laughs> What's next? What's Sense8. Sense8. I look forward to your attempts to keep this utterly short. Okay. Uh, I've watched three episodes, which is coincidentally the number of episodes that uh, critics have watched. Can I bitch for a second? Uh, because I noticed that there were a lot of critics um, who published reviews, who had screeners of three episodes, and they released reviews the day that the episodes went up or the day before. And a lot of the reviews were quite negative. Uh, and expressed a lot of confusion about the basic concept of the show and aspects of its presentation and aspects of its tonal variety, etc. Um, my thoughts are twofold. One, could you not have waited a little bit longer and watched more than three episodes considering they all come out at the same time? People could have waited a little bit longer and read about more episodes uh, because this is, you know, this is a show about uh, a bunch of people around the world who have uh, some kind of psychotelepathic connection, and that is confusing for them. So it's okay if it's a little bit confusing for you. Maybe give it a little bit more time. That being said, I didn't think it was at all confusing, but maybe that's just me, and I'm not trying to sound like a superior dick. Anyway, <laughs> um, second thought. Um, I, I've, I, I've long thought that the Wachowskis... Um, are filmmakers who I really, really want to love, and I frequently don't. I love Speed Racer, um, and I love um, Bound, and everything else has been really, really mixed. Uh, I keep waiting for them to make a thing that I absolutely love um, as much as, as as I would like to. Uh, I really didn't like Cloud Atlas. Jupiter Ascending was a mess. 
this feels very much like um, I forget who said it. I think it was Sam C. Mac on Twitter. Uh, this feels very much like Cloud Atlas without the training wheels was the exact phrase that that uh, that, that person used on Twitter. So I, the TM goes there. Uh, that feels totally apropos based on having watched these three episodes. Um, mostly the thing that I like about it is that, A, it's completely bonkers and silly, uh, which not enough shows are allowing themselves to be these days. And B, uh, it is um, warm and accepting and loving of its characters. And it's it's extremely diverse set of characters in every possible way except body type. We need some, some fat people on this show stat. If you had that, it would be perfect in terms of diversity, I think. Um, you've got a mix of class. You've got a mix of race. You've got a mix of sexuality. Um, Age? That is just... Uh, you've got, um, could be better with the age mix, although I could be forgetting things. Uh, there certainly aren't any elderly characters that I can think of, uh, nor any kids, although I don't really need kids. But anyway, um, that could, that may, that may be coming later. But, um, and it's also frustrating that this is a show that's so great with its diversity in so many respects, and yet everyone speaks English. Uh, anyway gonna let that go um because it's doing a lot of other things right um i love its tone and i love how goofy it is and, and its willingness to be totally out there um i would like it to be a little bit more visually interesting considering this is mostly directed by the wachowskis and tom tickver directors who are no stranger to visual innovation but you know three episodes it's got a lot of room to go i'm very very excited to watch the rest of it uh people who have complained about some of the dialogue and some of the corniness um get over it i don't know i mean it's <laughs> it's 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 a wachowski's joint man you don't watch it for the screenplay that was my other actual comment is that it feels distinctly like some people are watching this wrong i'm not trying to be a dick it just seems like you are <laughs> i don't know what to tell you uh um yeah and i've already said too much uh i, ho I hope everyone enjoys it i'm i'm enjoying it very much so far while i acknowledge that it is a flawed creature and i kind of like the ways in which it is flawed, and we'll talk about this more later. And I've already, once again, talked way more than I wanted to. Next is Hannibal, right? Yes, Hannibal's Hannibal next? and Antipasto. Okay. Uh, I was somewhat nonplussed by this episode. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the episode Sorry. that I loved. Such, like, we wrote a ridiculously long review at the website. To be fair, I watched this on Screener, where the NBC's video player was small and would not, like, it won't take up the whole screen, and the video quality is suspect, and there's two watermarks which are like right in the middle of the screen. So admittedly, my, my, my visual, my oral visual uh, experience was not one-tenth optimal for Hannibal levels. Uh, I enjoyed it, obviously, on an aesthetic level. Great to hear them mixing up uh, the soundtrack a little bit more than usual. Um, the already great soundtrack. Um, obviously, on a visual level, it's stunning. I don't need to tell you this. Uh, but it really made me realize how much um, I... I need Will Graham on the show um, and how much, and maybe that was part of the point. I don't know. Um, it, it's just, I, I really had no, I had zero emotional investment in this episode. Um, and sort of by, and not that, not as much intellectual investment as I would have liked. Um, I'll be curious. And I, I mean, obviously Will Graham is back next week. Um, you've seen, <laughs> I may sound like an idiot soon. Uh, but this seemed very much like the we will tease you with this for a week and then bring most of most, if not all of the other characters back in the following week. 
uh, and I long for that episode. And I will be on the Hannibal podcast. This is our design for episode two, so I really hope that happens. But I, it it was interesting for me to find out that without an emotional, um, without will there, without the empath there, um, there was something very, uh, uh, very very important missing for me in my Hannibal experience, and it was sort somewhat distressing to not have that there. Uh, and the the sort of fun fairy tale, uh, almost satirical aspect of it was, um, uh, again, intellectually interesting and clever because Hannibal is nothing if not clever. But I couldn't really engage with it on the same level I engage with most of the show. So yeah, it hmm. was it was fun for them to do something different. But I'm ready for the Will Graham show. So Bedelia couldn't fill that role for you because for me I was right there with her. Not even close. Ah, interesting. Well, we'll talk more Hannibal next week. Um, this is our design. We're we're running longer than intended, so we will move swiftly on. If you want to hear my thoughts on Hannibal, spoiler alert, I loved it. Um, you can read my ridiculous review, ridiculously long review at Sound on Sight. You can read my uh, over 1,300-word write-up of the soundtrack and score for the premiere, also at Sound on Sight. Or you could listen to my hour and a half long Hannibal podcast about the premiere on This Is Our Design. Or next week, you can listen to my 45 minute interview with Brian Reitzel about the scoring for Hannibal season three. There's plenty of Hannibal oh, content snap. out there for those uh, curious on my thoughts about this episode and the season as, as a whole. Um, we're we're going to move on for now. Game of Thrones, The Dance of Dragons. We talked about last week about how they took episode eight and basically made it an episode nine. Was this also an episode nine for you? No, um, this actually pretty much single-handedly ends the run of, of episode nines. If you ask me, um, there was very little in this episode that I liked. Um, Ari, the whole Stannis thing. Um, I don't think it's necessarily out of character. Um, what happens with him? I don't think that's really the problem. I think the problem is going to be if Stannis doesn't die next week, um, I will be wondering why I'm spending any time with Stannis <laughs> because um, they've spent so much of the season making him more interesting and more sympathetic and uh, and someone potentially worth spending any time with. And knowing, knowing they were deliberately going to do this, this rug pull, which I know many people are upset about, and that's fine. You're supposed to be upset. Um, but... The notion of him versus the Boltons next week is just like a big old shrug of, can they all die? <laughs> because I really don't care now um, at all. There was, a, there was a point in the middle of the season where it would have been very satisfying to watch Stannis' forces kill the Boltons. But now I really, really, really don't care, which is not a good way uh, to be looking at what should be a cataclysmic, exciting finale. Um, the never-ending story aspect of uh of the last couple scenes was very unfortunate um and the 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 dragon x machinaness of, of of it was hard to ignore especially because it felt so inevitable um i think that was another problem with this episode was that we're so used to shocks in uh in these episodes and yet by the 10 or 15 minute mark you kind of felt like you knew what the rest of the episode was going to contain and that was pretty much what i got um so it didn't wasn't able to live up to past not episode nines in that sense. Dorne has been a giant waste of time. 
uh, as definitively revealed in this episode, clearly there just to make sure Jamie wasn't in King's Landing, uh, where he would have absolutely prevented all of the unpleasantness with Cersei. Uh, and the Arya stuff kind of also feels like a waste of time. Again, we'll have to wait for next week to be sure, but yeah, there wasn't a lot in this episode that I liked. <laughs> Touche. Um, that's interesting that you say that about Stannis, because if Stannis dies next week in the finale i would be very frustrated because why have i followed that character for this many seasons if his fate is just just to, to die while he kills the boltons well that doesn't that also go for like a dozen other characters well no but the other characters that they've killed have all had ancillary characters surrounding them that their that other character's death reveals this uh, this side character or this supporting character as the true hero or the true you know successor to that storyline. Uh, so with Ned and uh, you know it's really you think the story's about him, but really it's not about him. It's about the vacuum uh, he will leave. And, okay, um, so it can be about Davos. Davos, this thing Davos has been gone for so much of this season. He, I mean. Why did we spend all this time with Melisandre if... Because they're not... They can't... I don't see them ever making her a main character. So why do we spend all this time with Melisandre if Stannis is just going to die? Um, things we can discuss next week. Yes. To be uh, continued, but, I suppose. But yeah, this was... I mean, I mean, I know you did a whole other podcast on this, but was this really up to the other episode nines for you? Well, I mean, I didn't really think of it in the context of the other episode nines. Um, I thought it was a solid episode that was really let down by the the poor buildup of the rest of the season. So I think these scenes individually work. I like the scenes we get in Dorne this week. Um, it's just they don't mean very much because there hasn't been anywhere near enough legwork done to support them. And that's how I feel about the scenes here we get with Arya <laughs> and... Um, and and other parts of the world as well. The the scene at the end with Danny and uh, Drogon really did work for me, um, though I, I hear where you're coming from with that. And th these are all things that we talk about on the Sound of Sight Game of Thrones podcast, which should be in your feed soon, if not already. Yeah, to to be to be brief and wrap this up. I mean, obviously, dragon burning everyone looked cool um, because it just did. Um, but yeah, there wasn't there was no. The second those people came out of the audience, I was like, oh, cool. So she's going to get saved by a dragon now. Because that's because we haven't seen them in like six episodes. And that's just what happens now. So, yeah, I don't know. It was disappointingly pat for me. Okay, fair enough. Um, let's move on to our next episode here, which is Orphan Black, Ruthless in Purpose and Insidious in Method. Uh, what did you think? I pretty much love this. And... Is it controversial to say that this is the best stretch of Orphan Black we've had since season one? The be How long do you define as a stretch? Well, last three episodes, let's say. I'm not sure. I'd have to think back on some of the stuff in season two, because what we got with um, Sarah and Helena, you know, with uh, Sarah being tied up in the shower and Helena saves her, and then we get the, the scene with the sniper rifle the week after with Rachel, that was, and then that's followed up by the road trip that the two of them have. That three episode arc really worked for me in season two. Um, and it sounds like you liked this episode more than I did. Um, so I, I, well, what particularly made it stand out for you? Well, for starters, it was the first episode in ages that I can remember where they actually had a twist that I didn't predict or didn't see coming in terms of what in terms of the fate of crystal which was brutal 
and uh, and t- totally felt in keeping with with everything we'd seen in terms of uh, in terms of how Rachel operates and how this villainry operates. Uh, it was it was great to see them actually have an episode this elegantly written and executed. Um, that being said, and and also that all that found time for so many great character moments, ha- having Felix get to basically do the clone thing. And and him be the one who goes undercover. And come on, straight Felix was hilarious. <laughs> that was pretty great. Um, also, I mean, come on, Donnie and Helena, fabulous. Oh my God, Donnie and Helena are amazing. Um, it, it seems pretty obvious that that Helena is going to be the one to save Donnie's ass next next week, or save Donnie and uh, Allison's ass next week. Mm-hmm. Um, that just seems like that's where that's going. And by the way, the preview for next week looks bonkers. Um, I don't know if you saw that or not. No, I did not. I uh, like they're headed mind. to London, though. Yeah, I, there are some things I want to say that I won't. Anyway, um, it looks amazing. But um, I don't know. There wasn't really anything in this episode I didn't like. Uh, I, the, the whole the way that they that they sketched out Crystal in the space of just a few minutes was beautiful. Yeah, it's another fantastic performance from Maslani and well, Surprise. yeah, very well conceived as a character. And like you said, very um, uh, efficiently introduced and and presented to the audience. And the chemistry, the, the, the shift in chemistry with Crystal and Straight Felix uh, was was pretty great. Uh, and it's it's nice to see them changing things up a little bit, giving us a little, just a little bit of something fresh in this, you know, this late into the season. It also helps that Caster's like basically gone. Uh, I also love that he threatens the cat, and so Scott gives him whatever he wants, and we don't know. There's not even the slightest hint of, dude, it's just a cat. I love that about this episode. Oh, uh, no, no, another great thing about this episode, by the way, Scott getting in the mix. Mm-hmm. Love Scott. Yep. Every time they go, I mean, I'm not a big fan of Agricola, Agricola, I should say the the board game. It's I get annoyed by any board game that has a correct answer. Oh, the way that, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that was a real board game. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a real real board game. And if you don't make babies, if you don't, you know, find you manage to allow your your people to to have kids within the world, you can, the game you can't possibly win, which is annoying to me. But um, although I, thematically fantastic for Orphan Black, very fantastic for Orphan Black. That's true. The only other thing I'll say about this episode is I've had a very hard time tracking Delphine over the course of this season and what we're supposed to think about her. And um, part of that is because they broke up at the beginning of the season because she Delphine was trying to protect Cosima and said if if you want me to to do what you're asking of me then we can't be together because it, I I won't be able to do what you're asking of me so this like sense of betrayal from Cosima towards Delphine is utterly bizarre to me because that is not they left it at I'm breaking up with you because I'm because of what you're asking me to do and so that I can do what you're asking me to do so it just this whole thing with Delphine is very problematic to me. Um, am I forgetting something? Honestly, I'm not sure, and I don't think you are because if you're not miss, if if you feel like you're missing something and I can't think of it, then I feel like it's not a thing. Um, I feel like between us, we probably <laughs> have it covered. Um, I mean, it just feels like they really, really like Evelyn Blushy and Which... want to keep her around. They talked fair. about at uh, the ATX panel. Yes, she's one of the people who read for for the clones for the main, central 
uh, roles, and they liked her so much that they wrote a character for her. So yes, they do. Right, and I wish uh, I'm I would be fine with keeping her around if they just let her be a person as opposed to like just like a play like when she is like like we have uh, like i am french we take lovers like fantastic like <laughs> that was a great moment let her be like a french weirdo um that would be great just don't make her be new rachel or just because we it feels like we've totally lost track of the character i agree however i liked basically everything else about this episode touche and um bringing tying in gracie and helena with allison and donnie goes a long way towards uh mitigating their disconnection from the rest of the season and if we get more funny soap making scenes then i can even deal with the drug dealing i suppose yes uh, also there is something strangely endearing about about donnie's line about being allison's bitch <laughs> it was it was great and and um that was that was a really another really nice character moment absolutely Let's move on to our last show uh, of the week, our weekend genre, and that's Penny Dreadful, Glorious Horrors. I would never have guessed that the Hannibal Ball, the Hannibal Waltz, would not be the most memorable and fabulous, uh, well, maybe not fabulous, I think the Hannibal Ball is more fabulous, but the most memorable uh, waltz and ball of the week, and yet Penny Dreadful. Um, I will say that as much as I was underwhelmed by this episode... I loved the decision to not have other people to, to for the for the blood to be totally in in Vanessa's experience um, because at first you 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 assume oh there's gonna be blood raining down people are gonna freak out uh horrible everything's ruined um, having her be the only one to see it so much more effective so much creepier plus it didn't ruin Dorian's ball so much better decision and, uh, and, a, and an incredible visual um, kind of underwhelmed by the rest of the episode, to be honest. Um, I'm trying to think of other things I liked. I like that um, we finally have um, Helen McCrory and Eva Green meeting up again. And it's just like, Oh, there's an enchantment. Okay. <laughs> like <laughs> that, that makes sense. Like it's not, it's not just them forgetting stuff. It's just she's real powerful and she can make people forget what she looks like. Cool. Um, but beyond that, yeah, there wasn't a lot I liked in this episode. It sort of leaned heavily on the stuff that I don't like as much as uh, except for maybe the Dorian stuff was nice. But other than that, it was mostly a lot of stuff I don't care about. I was actually a little annoyed that Dorian didn't remember uh, Brona. Um I mean, I think it makes sense given how old he is and how much he's experienced that he wouldn't remember every person he slept with. Um, but it was a little, I mean, maybe it's because I was so looking forward to that storyline being forced forward that when it wasn't, I was just annoyed. I was, I was more ticked off than Angelique was uh, watching them dance and not say, hey, by the way, um, it's just the two of us. So what's up with the accent? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, he he does he does recognize her somewhat, he but he doesn't can't... know from where or how. Right? Yeah, no, which I agree makes sense, but is also annoying. I mean, the most annoying machination to me is, uh, oh yeah, we're gonna make this Josh Hartnett's Wolf Knight, so we can't go to the ball. <laughs> Damn it! Damn it! We were so close. We were um, so close, but hey, at least you know one of the team is in on the secret. Yes, um, not enough though. Um, what else did we get in this? Oh, God. Everything with Frankenstein and Lily was just, ugh. 
Kill it with fire. <laughs> oh, how fire bad? Fire good. Fire bad. Fire good if it's killing I, it. I, yeah. I really hope Victor's last line is fire bad. <laughs> Whenever um, that happens. Any thoughts on uh, Timothy Dalton? What we get with him here? Or is uh, that just, again, more... Creepy, clean-shaven Timothy Dalton? <laughs> um, can you agree? I know you're not a beard person, but you have to admit that he was way less creepy with the beard. Um, I think because we, particularly on the show, we associate bearded Timothy Dalton with, um, you know, good and clean-shaven Timothy Dalton with uh, puppet-mastered Dalton. Um, there's obviously i i feel you there um and yes he it feels odd to see him without the beard and um as this character but you know clean-shaven timothy dalton is not substantially creepier it does emphasize the pointiness of yes. his face maybe a bit more uh other than that i don't know um this <laughs> this was uh sort of a dispiriting episode in the sense that I would very much like for them to uh, get to the point. Fair enough. I think I like this one more than you did. Um, the stuff with uh, Dorian Gray and Angelique really worked for me. Um, I wasn't too annoyed by the Lily and Frankenstein stuff, though. Again, I concur that needs to just like let's let's push that forward a little bit here. Um, I liked most of what we got with. Um, yeah, it also helps. No, John. Oh, we did have a John Claire. I just forgot we about did. it. Yeah, that was okay. But because again, it, it takes them in a direction different than what we we're expecting. Because it takes them a direction away from um, uh, doomed love, the way that they've been sort of foreshadowing with those two all season. So, um, more of the stuff that I like, less of the stuff that I don't. And you know, who's who's shocked when I like the episode more? Yeah, I, I I will say that I like that it seems like they're just not going to have uh, Caliban or John or whatever and Lily interact at all. <laughs> it's going to be fine. Like, I'm totally cool with that, even if I'm not totally cool with, you know, obviously I just want her to get an AK at some point and start mowing characters down. But since that's not going to happen, at least we can keep her away from John slash Caliban for like ever. Fair enough. Well, what wins your week in genre, sir? Huh. Um, you know, I'm going to give it to Sense8 in the hopes that it lives up to what I think it could be in in just a couple episodes from now. Okay, fair enough. And I'm, I'm giving it to Hannibal, definitely. Um, it's not even close for me. But, um, but you know, yeah, I liked, I liked Orphan Black, too. That was fun. Uh, but yeah, definitely Hannibal for me. Um, now, a few show notes. You can find a post-up for this episode at soundonsite.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where you can like us to follow the goings on at Soundonsite TV. We're also up on iTunes with an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. We would very much appreciate any feedback there, uh, ratings or reviews, as it does help other people find the podcast. And we're both up on Twitter. I am at the Televerse and Simon, you are? At Sucker Howl. And what is our question of the week? I think we already had one of those um, early on in the show when we were talking about breaking points for viewing. Um, mine is um, Jeff Buckley's recording of Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. If that ever shows up on TV again, I don't care how critically acclaimed you are. You are done. <laughs> Touche. Um, and we've already discussed mine at length. 
and its name is Tyrant. At least currently it appears to be. We'll see if I hold true to that over the next couple of weeks. Let us know what your breaking point is, listeners. Carl, thank you very much for the question. Um, and uh, now we'll take a break and come back with Todd Vanderwerf of Vox.com to discuss the fourth year, season four of ATX, uh, the Austin Television Festival. If you're Back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kulzik, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And this week, instead of the DVD shelf, we're going to be breaking down the ATX Television Festival a little bit because I attended it for the first time this year. The season four just wrapped up this past weekend. And uh, because I attended it and Simon did not, we thought we should probably get another voice in here. Uh, someone else who has uh, attended the festival before and came this year to give uh, to give their thoughts on it. So joining us once again, welcome back, is Todd Vanderwerf, the culture editor at Vox. Todd, thank you for coming back to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Well, ATX, uh, this was my first year going. I went partially because uh, I love TV, as pretty much anybody listening to this should know, but also because of all the great buzz that was coming out of season three uh, last year. So much uh, in- intriguing, uh, so many intriguing photos and uh, tweets and, and all of that. Um, was you- You've gone to the festival previously, Todd, Yes. Yes, I went to uh, the second and third festivals in 2013 and 2014, Um, and uh, this was, uh, it's grown a little bit more with every year. Like, in 2013, I was pretty sure it was never uh, going to happen again. I thought it was, like, dead, but uh, it it has kept going, and each year has seemed a little bit more like a successful thing that will be going the next year. How, what was your experience then, like this year? Did the, the you said it felt felt a little different? It's felt a little bigger each year. Um, has that how's that translated uh, to the overall experience for you? Um, it's been interesting. Like I I definitely like it when it's bigger. Like I think when it was so small, part of the problem is if they want to attract like really good panels and really good shows, and if they want to get like network partners. They almost have to be aiming towards someday being Comic-Con sized, but they're like, like I think their platonic ideal of the festival is a much smaller version, but it's hard to monetize a much smaller version. Um, I, I, I think I saw Kate refer to it as, as sort of like it, it caught between Ebert Fest and Comic-Con, but like Ebert Fest has some pretty deep pockets backing it up. Like it, it's much harder to do that when it's basically a volunteer run festival as it is. So uh, I think the inevitable thing is that they become Comic-Con, and I'm not sure how they feel about that. Yeah, it really seemed like this year um, there were these elements, and that's what it felt like to me leading up to this festival, to attending for the first time this year. Um, what I was, The things I was hearing, the reaction I was seeing online, um, it felt like this is a festival on its way towards being 
a television focused Comic-Con where there are big name guests, where are, there are um, significant lines and significant um, passionate fan bases. And we saw the start of that this season or this, you know, this year with with the, the Gilmore Girls um, panel, reunion panel and everything that came with that. But what was very surprising to me and I did end up having, I think, a mostly positive experience. It was a very um, extreme experience for me a lot of the, the time. It was either great or incredibly frustrating and uh, some in between, but not a lot. Uh, but what was very odd to me was to to see, to, to approach the festival after having only ever been to Comic-Con before. Comic-Con and Ebert Fest are the only festivals I've been to or, or conventions that I've been to. And um, to see certain aspects, like it's like they didn't realize what they were doing when they went after this passionate fan base, this Gilmore Girls fan base. They didn't, it's like they didn't understand sorry guys, fans are going to line up more than a, an hour ahead. And they're definitely going to line up for the Gilmore Girls panel much earlier than two hours ahead. There just seemed like so many easily identifiable and preventable and foreseeable issues that the people organizing the festival didn't seem to want to embrace. You know, I think that's, that's, that's interesting. Um, I almost see Gilmore Girls as a trial balloon. Like, they knew it was a big show. They knew it would bring out a lot of big people. But it's not like Buffy. Mm-hmm. And I think their end game is like, let's get Buffy up on stage. Let's get, uh, I'm trying to think of some other shows in sort of in that weight class. Um, let's get Lost up there. Let's get, I think, I think probably like, I've been thinking about what they're going to do next year. What, like what's turning 10, 15 next year. And sort of the obvious answer is that they get uh, Alias there, which if they can get Jennifer Garner and J.J. Abrams is almost bound to happen. Like they're not going to get Bradley Cooper, but he's sort of incidental. So, but yeah, like, like they're clearly aiming toward having some of those really big events that previously have only been at Taylor Fest. And I don't think that's a bad idea. I think that's a good idea, but I, I think they almost did Gilmore Girls as a way to see how much of this can work right now and how much needs to be fixed. And though a lot needs to be fixed, I was surprised at how much worked as well. Okay. Well, feel free to dive in with that. What were you seeing? What impressed you? What was working that maybe you didn't expect to, to work this first? Um, you know, they started that thing a half hour late, which was a problem, of course. And they, they had to turn a bunch of people away. And they had people fainting. They had long lines. They had uh, a hot sun. You know, these were all problems they probably should have anticipated and probably could have anticipated. But getting people into the theater, getting, um, getting the time with the cast, the setup of the panel, the stage management of the panel... Um, the uh, system for uh, having us get seated and things like that. Like, it wasn't as smooth as it could have been, but it was very smooth. It was like a surprisingly smooth evening. And uh, I, I feel as if for their first really big event, like, uh, they have a lot to be proud of while clearly uh, having fucked up a lot of other things. That is interesting because we had very, very different experiences then because, well, yeah, everything about the line that that I was seeing was over over the course of the time that I was in line. And I didn't even get in line anywhere near as early as many people did. Um, I did and again, maybe it's because my comparison is Comic-Con, who understands how to run a line. They may 
have their problems at Comic-Con, and I'm sure I'll be talking about those in about a month. But they don't stand people in direct sunlight for 90 minutes. They don't tell you they're going to give you water and then not give you water. I mean, they don't They don't start fill, filling in a 1,270-person theater at 6.45 for a 7 o'clock show. Um, no, I, I, I yes, they, they certainly have problems, but I haven't been there the two years before. The ATX of 2013 in no way could have pulled that event off. And the ATX of 2015 got like 75% of the way there. The 25% they messed up was pretty bad, and like they, they, they screwed up some pretty fundamental stuff. But it's all stuff that's pretty easy to fix. Some of it is inevitably going to have is going to be them realizing that they are bigger than they think they are, and they need to find a larger venue, uh, which is probably a discussion they're going to be having over the next few years because that is a significant expense. Um, but also, you know, some of it is just like, okay, we need to make sure we have enough water. We need to deal with the fact that people are going to be in line from, you know, God knows when um, to see the March panel. We have to be smarter about how we're programming stuff. Because I, I, I thought their strategy was sort of interesting. They programmed most of the big panels I would expect people to be into for like 3 p.m. on Saturday. And then they ran till about 5. And like that, you know, they had the Dawson's Creek one then. They had the, um, the Hannibal one. They had the Simpsons one. They had a bunch of things that were legitimately interesting to go to. However, people were already lining up because Gilmore Girls was like the only thing they had come to see, which probably they should have foreseen. But I think that they had a, a smart defense in some ways. Like, I think they ran a smart game. I think they just didn't play out the worst case scenario and the worst case scenario kind of bit them in the ass. Uh, yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, you're just you're just way more positive on, on it than I am. And I and it also I'm sure some of this is the perspective that I can't have of what it was like previously and what it was like this year. Um, but yeah, that's you're you're much more optimistic about the the organizers maybe than I am. I'm sure some of it is that I got in right away because I like I had a I had you, an RSVP and everything like that. I'm sure that that is some of it. You mean um, you didn't feel like you were going to faint after standing in the hot sun for ninety no. minutes? Because I did. That no, was fun. I, I think they I think they made a lot of a lot of mistakes they probably should have foreseen. I think that I, I, when it comes to criticizing this festival, um, I am often probably harder than I need to be because I see the potential of what it what it could be. Um, and I definitely think that they made a lot of like there are a lot of mistakes that were made here that were entirely their fault that they should have figured out way ahead of time and should have been on top of. And uh, they are sometimes very bad at that. There are a couple of smaller things that were not their fault that they could not have you know, anticipated in any way. But definitely it's like a thing where they, they screwed up a lot of stuff and they should have been more on top of that stuff. But at the same time, I agree. They're also like a four-year-old festival, which their growth rate has been pretty phenomenal. Like I, I, I get why people are upset that they are not they, – they took a too big of a step. Like, they probably should have taken more of an incremental one, but I, I'm glad that they did, even as I see that, that they, made a lot of, uh, they made a lot of dumb errors. I think the thing that most, and, and there are things that I loved about the festival, if anybody from the festival is listening, hold on a little bit longer, I'm going to complain a little bit more, and then we'll get to some of the things that I loved. Um, I think the thing that was most disconcerting to me 
is the per my perception of their priorities as a festival because I don't understand how you have uh, your you sell your festival as like the the big thing, the big ticket item, the thing that everybody at least according to all of the buzz that they were tweeting out about. So they're very aware of the coverage the festival was getting. Um the big deal was the Gilmore Girls panel and they put it in a in a just under 1300 person venue and then I was hearing from people who were told that they were in the non-fast pass line that they were 150 and they didn't get in. So that means if that mm. is accurate, that means that there are what I, the numbers I was hearing. And again, the, these are the numbers I was hearing from people who claim to have sources, who knows, was that there were 400 fast passes. So if 400 people who bought a badge got in with a fast pass and not even 150 who didn't have a fast pass, Got in. That means that of a nearly thirteen hundred person auditorium, most by not even half of the the seats were filled by people who had purchased a weekend badge because they wanted to see Gilmore Girls, and that is a significant problem. Yeah, um, I, they definitely like part of it is facilities. Uh, this is one of the things where I feel as if they're they are being held. Uh, accountable that they didn't really have a choice in because I, I talked with um, Eric Adams, the TV editor at the AV Club, but also used to live in Austin, and they are very limited by where they are. And I, I also think they're sort of limited by the experience. Like, Austin doesn't have a bigger facility downtown outside of maybe going to UT and using one of their auditoriums, which almost defeats the purpose of having this sort of fan festival. So I certainly, I certainly agree that maybe there should have been a tighter leash on uh guest passes or on the i believe they sold individual tickets to the event which yes was, which was, just boggles the mind to me uh you know they they're a small festival they got to make money however they can um but like i i think uh i think that probably they should have had a tighter rein on that they probably should not have sold the individual tickets but i also think that they are stuck in some ways by the geography of where they are one of the best things about ATX is that it's in Austin, and probably the worst thing about ATX is that it's in Austin. Uh, it's that much harder to get talent there. It's that much harder to find facilities there. Like, if this was in L.A., it would not be a problem, but if this was in L.A., it probably wouldn't feel as special. So that's, that's going to be one of the big things they struggle with as they get larger. Yeah, definitely one of the um, – and I'm sure I, – I... I'm sure there are many people who absolutely love Austin and love the fact that it's in Austin. And the connection to Friday Night Lights is is which is a show that I love is really special at ATX. Um there's there's a lot of support uh, amongst the Austin community for Friday Night Lights which shot outside of Austin to my knowledge. Um that th that connection with Friday Night Lights is sort of feels like a mission statement for the festival and that is that is really great. However, for me that was pretty much the only real boon to being in Austin because it was for me I, I was too hot, I was too humid. There was a lot of the time there wasn't shade. Um I didn't get much of a chance to eat food cuz I was in line all the time for panels. So I'm sure there's a delicious world of food options and bar options in Austin. Um but I didn't get a chance to see any of that because it, it was either do that or get into panels, and I decided I should be covering panels. Yeah, um, I, I think uh, you know. I think that probably for me, the being in Austin is a, a bigger part of it than for some people who are 
and I have to admit, you know, I have my own biases here, which is that I, as someone who's working press, as someone who's been doing this a while, like I have a kind of access that fans will not have. Like if I want to um, interview Brian Fuller, I could email his publicist and be like, hey, is Brian Fuller doing interviews? And they'll be like, uh, you know, yes or no. If I'm a fan of Hannibal and I want to see Brian Fuller, like then I have to stand in line and go to the panel and see Brian Fuller. So like that is certainly a difference I have is that I could sort of prioritize different things. But um, I, I definitely think that like Austin has such a different vibe. Even if you stay just within like the small radius of venues around the uh, convention center, there's such a different, or the, the hotel, not the convention center. There's such a different vibe from uh, like San Diego or Los Angeles or any place like that. That like, I still think that's sort of a, a boon in in the festival's favor. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit first. I, Simon, you're here. Yes. Do you have any questions? Any thoughts on on on, on Austin? Do I have any thoughts? I mean, on the all of my festival. Aust- <laughs> I should say. <laughs> I don't think any of my Austin-related questions uh, relate to the festival. Um, well, I mean, I guess, you know, we're 15 or so minutes into this recording, and I, I feel duty-bound to ask, um, what were some good things that happened that you enjoyed? I'm going to flip entirely and be negative now. So, oh. Okay, you be positive. Well, I, th- this is a excellent reminder of one of the panels I enjoyed, which was, of course, the one, Todd, that you were on, which had TV critics talking about their jobs and what it's like to be a TV critic, and then arguing and debating over different topics. That was pretty fun. Um, but the, the panels that and the moments that most stand out to me um, and that really show me what this festival could be, I'm not very convinced that at least as from what I based on what I saw this this year, I'm not necessarily convinced that that this is what the show the, the festival will become or that the organizers have the correct priorities to allow this to be what the festival becomes. But the the Bunhead's panel that I went to was fantastic. It was just such a wonderful and I mean, I'm, I'm such a fan of that series, but the, it's the kind of show that had such a tiny but passionate audience. Amy Sherman Palladino was a big part of why that panel was so much fun. It also deviated from the normal format for ATX of watch an episode together and then have a short Q&A. It was really very much uh, apparently the same format they had for the, the Gilmore Girls panel, which was bring people out associated with the show and let them really talk about what made it special and why we all love it. And so to get that sort of experience in, in a room of people when normally if I meet one person who's seen Bunheads, that is rare, let alone a, a room full of people who all love it as much as I do. That was, a, that was a very special uh, panel for me, experience for me going to hang out in a parking lot and, and, uh, and meet listener to the podcast, Beth, which was great and hang out for oh, hours. Snap. Yeah. And, um, and watch an episode of Friday Night Lights together and listen to Hep Alien, the fictional band from within the world, a universe of Gilmore Girls, play a half hour set. That stuff was great. The leftovers panel that we had on Sunday, the very last fe- uh, festival uh, panel of the festival was, was just fantastic. And part of that's because Damon Lindelof gives good panel. And part of that was because my three favorite actors from the show, Christopher Eccleston, Carrie Coon, and Ann Dowd, were there and were great guests. And also Ben Blacker did a f- fantastic job hosting that panel as well. Um, and it was it was really, it was smart and interesting and engaging conversation from people who are passionate about what they do and for an audience that is engaged and passionate about the medium. It 
this was not a panel where we had people giving awkwardly long hugs, which was the thing that I kept seeing happening over the course of the weekend. This was a panel of people really interested in to diving into the form and substance of what television is and can be. And for me, that is what I want ATX to be. I don't know if it will become that for like a sustained weekend of that, but if that was possible, I would love to be there for that. I just want to quickly interject and say that I, I'm sure Damon, Damon Lindelof gives great panel. I'm sure that he must uh, be great to watch in those rare instances when he's in a room in which no one is livid with him. <laughs> uh, I want to echo a lot of what, what Kate said, but um, the festival is still too vanished for me. I get that that's why it exists. Uh, I get that like they're not going to... like. If I ran a TV festival, it would be the most boring TV festival in the world. And I would be would, there. Would want to come. <laughs> you and me, Todd. <laughs> it would be just like really dry discussions of how the cancellation stressful. Well, that's the part of um, the – those are the panels that I got the biggest kick out of. I mean, I, it was it was fun to watch Christian Brune twerk at the Orphan Black panel. Don't get me wrong. That was fun. And Brian Fuller uh, is always, you know, impish when he speaks, but um, the conversations at Google Fiber, where we really delved into the nitty gritty of the process, that's what I really enjoyed. I think, uh, so I think there's room to do more of that kind of critical discussion of television or that discussion of television as an industry. But I also accept that like what most people want to do is go and see actors from shows that they love and shows that they, they adore, both currently running out of the past. Where I think sometimes the festival struggles is, their approach to scheduling occasionally feels haphazard. Like they just randomly throw shows in the mix because they have enough cast members there. Um, and it's some, it doesn't really feel like there is a theme to it in some ways. Um, this year was like, who can we get that was on Gilmore Girls? Let's go from there. And like, I appreciate that, but it's, it's also, um, you know, if Melissa McCarthy had come, would they have done a Mike and Molly panel? Probably actually, now that I think about it. Yep. Uh -huh. Uh, they would have done a Samantha Who panel, for God's sake, if wait, wait. Uh, Melissa McCarthy had come. Wait, who who is that? The, that person you mentioned? They they were not mentioned once at the uh, <laughs> at the festival, so clearly not, they can't be significant. They're not real. Apparently, Amy Amy Sherman Palladino talked about her at the breakfast with Amy Sherman Palladino, but uh, as I, I was not there, so my experience of not hearing Melissa McCarthy's name was far more acute. Um, <laughs> I think I think the thing I like most about the festival is this platonic ideal. I wrote a piece about this that hopefully will go up on Vox. I honestly don't know if it will because I don't know if it's like a piece or if it's just me blathering on, which happens sometimes. Uh, but, but it's with my editor right now, which is about how the festival in some ways is like catered toward an audience of women in a way that like there aren't a lot of major pop culture events that are like they are literally trying to grow this into a Comic-Con for people who, for, for people who watch the WB in their teens and twenties, which is an insane idea in some ways, but also like really kind of welcome. Um, I think that there is a, like, I think, you know, I think there's nostalgia out there and, and I have my problems with nostalgia, but a lot of it is that nostalgia is catered to the same very specific subset of people. And like ATX is one of the few times where sitting in that theater as the Gilmore girls cast was revealed as, you know, women all around me were screaming in excitement at seeing these people or at watching the, uh, the opening credits or at seeing Edward Herman's name in the opening credits and everybody getting a little bit 
ethnicity, like that is not an experience I can have anywhere else. And like, it is so interesting to have that feeling of, you know, just complete abandonment that like is not, is not driven by like seeing a superhero movie trailer. And like, that's really weird and welcome. And I hope they find a way to sort of keep cultivating that so far. They have so far, they've been very good about, about pulling that out, but like, you know, inevitably they're going to have to expand more. Inevitably they're going to have to grow more beyond their core audience of WB viewers. But like, I, I was, I was impressed and moved in that moment. Now, Simon, I have a question for you. Is there a show that they could feature at ATX that would make you want to go? Cause I know you're burning hatred for all things Comic-Con. <laughs> Uh, and we should clarify, having not been to Comic-Con, I, I actually, I'm going to redirect that into a different question, um, because I don't think that there is, because I, I, I really, I have no interest in, in fan culture, really. Nothing against fan culture. I'm a fan of many things. It's just, you know, the idea of, of gathering in a room and all getting the warm fuzzies for a thing I already like, is it's a preaching to the choir thing that doesn't really interest me. However, uh, I feel like something that's been kind of teased in this conversation is, you know, there are dozens of symposiums and academic conferences all around the world every year for film. Um, and I don't know that there is one that is specific to TV where people who uh, study television or uh, write about it on a regular basis can, uh, can get together, present ideas and uh, that I, that would be open to the public and that would be focused on sort of, championing things that people don't necessarily think about or presenting new ideas or ha or being more sort of discussion focused and idea focused and not so fanish. I don't really know if that exists. Uh, if it does, I would love to hear about it, but I feel like I never do. Uh, it, I think it's always TV. Like they, these things do exist. I've been invited to speak at a few of them and have never quite been able to make it. But um, like, I think in some ways TV fandom is, just that it's sort of by fans for fans like if you look at tv critical discussion uh especially on the internet it's very homogenized like there are very like one of the things i loved about the leftovers in addition to just loving the leftovers was that everybody like argued about that show yes it's very rare for there to be a show that people actually have significant disagreements over like everybody agrees the americans is good everybody agrees bad men is good etc cetera, etc cetera. and like I think that is a real problem to the artistic growth of the form and especially to criticism of the form. So like, but like to a degree, because you watch a television show so fervently and so religiously, it becomes a part of your identity being a fan of that show. And like, that's enough. That's a thing that, uh, you know, the medium as a whole is probably going to have to overcome. But like, I, I think that, there is that element of academic or critical focus, and there are conferences like that. I don't know if they're open to the public, honestly, but like uh, it feels like you know the, the the fan culture kind of drives TV in a way that it doesn't uh, even like film. Twenty fifteen has been the year for me of the of consensus breaking down. Not so much because people are arguing more, although it is happening a little bit more, uh, but mostly because there's just so much. Uh, coming from so many different content streams that no one can watch everything. So you're ending up with with everyone trying to convince you to watch certain things and you can only get to so many of them. Um, so even just to have a space for people to to praise things that, that you think are outside your wheelhouse uh, and to present them in a new way would, would, would be interesting. Uh, although uh, I, I certainly invite 
uh, more shows that create arguments. And it seems like maybe Sense8 will do that. But anyway, um, <laughs> I we're getting really derailed because I don't go to these festivals. But these are also things that I think about. Well, I, and I think you key into, um, well, uh, first of all, we've talked about this in the podcast before, but I'd also throw into that mix, Simon, the fact that there are so many very good shows, um, they're to good to great shows that it allows critics to be more personal and more specific in what they like and why. So there are no longer, is it just, they're like the three best shows on TV and yeah. they're clearly worlds beyond everything else. That is not the reality of TV and hasn't been it for quite a while, but we seem to finally be accepting that as a larger, you know, American TV watching culture. Uh, but I think what you're really keying into there, Simon is one of another of my, you know, takeaways about Austin, about ATX, is that there are a bajillion, it's a technical term, film festivals. There's there's a film festival for the town, like one suburb over from me. I mean, like, there are huge festivals all across the world for, tele, for, for film. And I understand when people say that there are a handful for, the, for US TV, but I think they're wrong, because I don't think Paley Fest counts, because in the evening over the, you know, hanging out for just the evening over the course of several weeks, that's not a festival. That's if you live in LA, you can go. And if you don't, you can't. And things that are close to the public don't count. So if you want to go to a television festival right now, there is one. And I'm pretty sure that, that I'm correct with that because I looked for another one to attend because <laughs> my sister couldn't come to this one. Um, it's a very it's an underserved market as the appreciation and respect for television as a medium continues to grow and continues. I mean, who knows how long you've talked about this a little bit over the weekend, Todd, the notion that that bubble may burst um, in the next five or 10 years. But as the appreciation and, cult and critical respect, uh, cultural respect for television grows, I would not be surprised to see more of these pop up, especially if ATX is able to get a hold and and start being successful. And I look forward to if that happens. I hope it does. If it if that happens, I look forward to finding the one that is for me. Well, I think think I think. Well, first of all, you're missing a couple of pretty major TV festivals. Um, okay. The, the New York tele, the New York TV Festival. And, now, isn't um, that for well, industry types? No, that is open. That's open to the public. Okay. Uh, as is the one in LA that I can't remember the name of. It's very similar. The difference. In those ones, that they're about independent TV, which is a very nascent movement that basically doesn't exist, but exists much more than it did 10 years ago when, when they started. And, like, increasingly um, is, you know, very well produced, very good stuff. And, like, if we're looking at the film festival model, then really what, what we probably need to be looking at is, like, the growth or lack thereof of independent television. Um and like that's like like part of the problem there is that nobody's figured out the distribution model. Although now we sort of know it probably involves YouTube. Um, but like like that's probably that's probably where we need to go. Like like the thing about ATX is that it's it's probably going to become like Comic Con because that's the natural thing to do. Like um, and I so I agree if it's a huge success there will probably be mini versions of it. And that's going to turn into an interesting competition because as it is, ATX is not very well supported by the networks. Uh, Fox backs it up, FX backs it up, backs it up. Uh, but I was there in 2013 and AMC had a pretty big presence and AMC has not really been back. Um, I was there, you know, uh, uh, like I, like there have been networks that have sort of tried it out 
and not really come back. Um, like CBS dabbles a little bit, NBC dabbles a little bit. ABC was there in full force in 2013, and uh, you rarely see ABC anymore. So sort of the problem is like convincing the networks these events are legitimate, and the Gilmore Girls thing was to a real degree, I think, an attempt to do that. And like in that regard, was probably pretty successful. Any final thoughts, uh, Todd, on your ATX experience? Any other highlights for you, or uh, you know, would you, would you would you recommend people go next year? I think so. Yeah, I, I think it's a I think it's a fun event. I think it's still small enough that you will probably have a good time. But I guess I will put it this way: I um, the Thursday night karaoke event, which uh, really started in 2013 when I first went because it was my idea. No, <laughs> no. The, so the, the Thursday night karaoke event that has become sort of this like institution literally was started because like some of us AV club writers wanted to get together that Thursday night. It was not in any way my idea. I did not pick the venue. I'm just, I'm just taking credit for myself. And like that year, it was a very intimate gathering. It was friends. It was like one of my favorite nights of the year. Last year, it got, it got much bigger. A lot more people showed up, but you know, we like, like showrunner Kyle Killen was there. It was fun this year. It was huge. Like this year it was packed. Like you could not move around in that bar. And like that to me is kind of the stratospheric growth you're seeing from this. And it's not going to be too much longer that it's the intimate festival. I think the founders envisioned and uh, we are definitely heading to something much bigger. Fair enough. Any uh, final, any questions, Simon? Um, is there any reason that uh, next summer between us, we couldn't figure out a way to congregate with a few thousand other people in Deadwood, South Dakota, and uh, watch, I don't know, six episodes of Deadwood a day and get plastered and throw some theories around? You know I would love that. Deadwood's a lovely city. If you can organize that, I will show up. Um, Deal. But yeah. Um, my, my thoughts on ETX are much more mixed. Um, it didn't feel small to me. It didn't feel intimate to me. Um, it didn't feel, um, I didn't feel like the, the people running it cared about what my experience was. And that started when, um, they didn't care to, they, they, they wanted the press to just buy their plane ticket a few weeks before the festival and didn't care enough to, you know, tell us whether or not they were going to let us cover their festival until the middle of May when it's an early June festival. Uh, the, the the debacle with the fast passes online, the, and not just the fact that it was problematic. Those things are always problematic. But again, the response to fans, I, I don't have faith based on what I've seen this year in the organizers. Um, again, their priorities and their their focus on the fans as the most the, the attendees not necessarily fans but the attendees as the most important part of the festival to them and so that is what makes me very hesitant to tell people they should go i think basically i understand why so many people after having gone this year and having in you know some days were great some days were not um having such a mixed experience i understand why i know so many people who went last year and didn't come back this year i don't know that i will be back next next year um if i get press coverage maybe but if they expect me to buy my air, my airfare two weeks before the festival i mean probably not because i don't have the cash for that um so 
I, I'm I'm very mixed on ATX. I like you say, Todd. I love the plat the platonic ideal. I love the the concept of it. I just don't know that I have confidence in the festival organizers to make it happen. Let me say this to you, and this is the most positive thing I've ever said about this festival. I went in 2013, and was pretty sure I would not go back. I went back because I had fun seeing my friends, and I liked eating barbecue. Like that was literally, <laughs> and they had they had a critics panel that I was on, and I thought that sounded like fun. So I went back in 2014 because of that. And the amount of problems they solved between 2013 and 2014 was remarkable. And the same is true between 2014 and 2015. They find the bugs and they squash them. The problem is they're so small and they have so many big growing pains that, like, the bugs are still the most obvious thing you see. But they are clearly trending in the right direction. Are they trending quickly enough to keep up with the disgruntled? I don't know. But as someone who's gone multiple years, it feels that way to me that they are. Okay. So you don't have the, the you, you don't have the ATX burnout the way that you do the Comic-Con burnout. Yeah, I would, I would gladly go again uh, instead of going, whereas I'm not going to Comic-Con this year. I think Comic-Con is a far worse event, <laughs> much okay. worse. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much, Todd, for coming on to talk with us about a ATX. Oh, no Where problem. can our listeners find you and your work online? All right. Uh, I am at Vox.com, which you can find at Vox.com. And uh, I am also at Twitter at Twitter.com slash TVOTI. My wife and I have a podcast called TV on the Internet, which we never produce but will again someday, and that's at TVOTI.net. Thank you again so much, and uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. <laughs>